is our last time. Let us pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for bringing us together today to worship. We thank you for uh, giving us the past 13 weeks that we've had together in this class, Lord, to, to explore art, to explore beauty, to explore creativity, these gifts that you have given us, Lord, let us take what we've discussed in this time forward out into our lives. Uh, Lord, uh, bless our time together today. In Christ's name, amen. For the last time, I'll start us with a prayer. Not one from the prayer book, but one by someone we are talking about today. This is a poetic prayer written by C.S. Lewis. Master, they say that when I seem to be in speech with you, since you make no replies, it's all a dream, one talker aping two. They are half right, but not as they imagine, rather I. Seek in myself the things I mean to say, and lo, the wells are dry. Then, seeing me empty, you forsake the listener's role, and though my dead lips breathe and the interutterant utterance wake, the thoughts I never knew. Through knew. <laughs> uh, and thus, you neither need reply nor can, thus while we seem to talking. Thou art one forever, and I, no dreamer, but thy dream. So, C.S. Lewis on, on our, our helplessness uh, uh, in ourselves and, and uh, the Spirit of God uh, moving in us with things that we do not know to pray. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, we know today as one of the great Christian writers of the 20th century, one of the great uh, fantasy writers of the 20th century. And yet, C.S. Lewis was, for a good portion of his life, not Christian. After his mother's death, when he was nine years old, he very much rejected God and went through his adolescence and his 20s as an avowed atheist. Uh, uh, but uh, during, uh, during a succession of events, encounters with, with what felt like coming from beyond him as well as conversations, intellectual conversations, uh, with friends he, he continually met. Uh, he, was, he gradually came back around to Christian faith. One of these episodes happened here. Uh, on Addison's Walk, which uh, is, is a path uh, that... that uh, lies beside a creek behind Maudlin College in Oxford. 
it was a regular walking place for C.S. Lewis and his friends. And when Lewis was about 32, he was walking with uh, two friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. And Lewis was perplexed. They all, all three of them had a great love of stories, of fantastical stories, of old mythology. And so Lewis knew that the trope of a god dying, uh, that, that was repeated throughout, uh, throughout ancient antiquity. And so he felt, well, C.S., he felt Christianity was just a repeat of that same legend. But Tolkien said back to him that no, no, Christianity is the true myth that makes all of these that these other myths have always been pointing to. We knew that this is part of what we needed. And so that was a huge stepping point in Lewis's understanding of, one, how, how Christianity was the fulfillment of all that we have been longing for, but also... Uh, that, that stories in general, the great stories, are all ultimately pointing to this truth. And, of course, C.S. Lewis, besides uh, being known for Narnia, became known as one of Christianity's great popular apologists one of the great defenders of the faith in the 20th century uh, through his books like uh, uh, Mere Christianity, Miracles, The Problem of Pain, and so many more. But something was key. Oh, this is another shot. Uh, along Addison's Walk. And if any of you know Lewis, or especially Tolkien's works, uh, when I was in Oxford uh, uh, for, uh, on, on a vacation, uh, scenes like this struck me because of reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and so many other things. How, how visually uh, scenes that I had thought about as, as I was reading those books, uh, how, how they seemed to so much be informed about the environment uh, in, uh, that these guys would have been walking along. Um, uh, yeah, they, they were walkers. C.S. Lewis did not have a driver's license. Ever, by the way, he was, he apparently was a terrible driver, and uh, <laughs> anyhow, but scenes like this that that almost recall uh, things in those books. 
But from, uh, from Lewis and Tolkien, uh, I, I want to reflect back on things that we have talked about uh, throughout the course of our time together. What does it look like to be an artist, visual artist, writer, uh, uh, musician, uh, you know, actor, whatever, uh, in, in the context of uh, being, being a Christian, being a Christian in the modern world, and maybe how that carries forward into being a Christian in general. And so we're going back to the three transcendentals. May your art be good. May your art be true. And may your art be beautiful. So when we talk about... Go back for a second. When we talk about your art being good... This, this is something that I think that uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and their friends can teach us a lot about, about how they actually manage that. These guys who are you know, being, being uh, read, and whose works are being uh, adapted uh, you know, half, half a century or more after they have died. They applied skill. These, these guys never stopped honing their talent. They never stopped informing their talent. And they never stopped practicing their talent. And it, re- and it recalls back at the beginning of our lessons when we were in the Old Testament, how Bezalel and Oholiab uh, they were called skilled craftsmen. They, uh, these guys who, um, who crafted uh, all of the ornamentation of the tabernacle. They were, they were disciplined. They, uh, they uh, applied themselves regularly to their work. They had discernment, uh, and most importantly, I think, and this is just as true for the Christian life in general, they had community. Now I go to this slide. (laughs) This is the Eagle and Child Pub in Oxford, uh, where where C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and many of their friends met for years. Now, they would usually meet here, mainly for fellowship. They would, they would meet there about once a week, talk, talk about each other's lives, uh, have a beer or good food, and, and catch up with each other. But this was a central meeting place for them, a, a uh, gateway to be invited into this fellowship. Meanwhile, in 
Lewis's rooms, his, uh, his office and study in Magdalen College. Uh, by the way, that's spelled Magdalen, but English is weird. <laughs> uh, uh, it's been around so long since that the pronunciation in normal English has changed, but they still say Magdalen. They developed a group of friends called the Inklings. Uh, here are a few of those guys, though, though it changed over time. This was probably taken in the early 1940s. Uh, and you have Tolkien, as well as their friend Charles Williams, uh, Hugo Dyson, uh, C.S. Lewis himself, and Owen Barfield. Um, mainly Tolkien, uh, Lewis, and to some degree Charles Williams are the ones we still hear about today, but they were all uh, good Oxford men in their time uh, and very much involved in each other's work because they knew how much community would make each other's work better, just as being involved in community makes our lives as Christians better. We can encourage each other. We can correct each other. Uh, uh, Diane Glyer, in her book Bandersnatch, uh, named after uh, a creature in um, uh, that C.S. Lewis, uh, not C.S. Lewis, Lewis Carroll, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, wrote, <laughs> um, she de- she te- details it this way. The Inklings were involved with one another's work at the smallest level of detail. C.S. Lewis read and corrected the proofs of Dyson's, Augustine's, and Romantic's Warren Lewis read and corrected his brother's The Pilgrim's Regress. That was, that was Lewis's first uh, book post-conversion. Um, Charles Williams edited Lewis's The Allegory of Love when it landed on his desk at the Oxford University Press. In fact, Williams is the one who gave that book its title. Owen Barfield a solicitor by profession, read Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, with extreme care, looking for potential lawsuits before he cleared it for publication. (laughs) Uh, When Tolkien translated Beowulf, Lewis read through that draft more than once, marking up the manuscript, suggesting changes to word choice and phrasing. When the writer Angier did research on writing groups, she found that one of the most important things to their success is textual indeterminacy. That is the writer's ability to stay open to the possibility of sustained change. This helps explain the the effectiveness of the Inklings. As they met and talked about their work, they viewed each manuscript as a work in progress. 
they shared very rough drafts, fully expecting to revise them, sometimes adding, sometimes deleting, and sometimes rewriting the material. They might take all of the advice they were given or take only small parts of it. Sometimes advice simply served as a springboard to a brand new idea. Other times it sparked a reaction in direct opposition. In all these situations, the Inklings were open to the possibility of new directions. As someone who is a writer and artist myself at times, uh, this is hard. When you have an idea for a story in your head or a piece of art in your head, and, and uh, you, you know what you dream it to be. And then to hear someone's ideas to say, well, it could be better here. It could be tighter here. Uh, you could do more here. Uh, it's, it's very much uh, uh, like being uh, criticized in, in reality when, you know, if, if you're underperforming at work or, or whatnot. You have such an idea of what you're supposed to be doing or what your vision is for this piece. I kick against the goats. And yet, the stories that I've had most feedback with, just like the activities I've had most feedback with, have been the best for that outside interaction. Uh, I also do proofreading on the side. One of the many things I do on the side at this point. Um, <laughs> and and uh, people get very attached to certain sentences that they've put in, uh, in what they've, they've written. Uh, and without that outside perspective, you, don't, you never appreciate the sense of uh, it would actually be tighter. It would flow so much better. It would be more beautiful without that or with a tweak there. So moving on from these great guys here. Oh, that's all I've got, actually. May your art be true. Now, we know these guys, at least the more famous of them, as primarily fantasy writers. Lewis's apologetics work taken aside, most people know him for, uh, for the Chronicles of Narnia, for his wonderful space trilogy as well. Uh, and we know, of course, Tolkien from the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and the other uh, uh, works of Middle Earth. And think of all the, all the other um, artists we've talked about, especially over the last two or three weeks where, where we have moved beyond realism in some sense. Where, where we have had 
the Impressionists, the post-Impressionists, some of the modern artists who, who have taken a snapshot of reality but then infused it with bright, uh, uh, bold colors, colors not normally seen in accurate, literal representations. Or... Um, or different shapes, different, different things that, that these artists are trying to capture truth and to relay truth to their audience. And yet, uh, and yet through those post-impressionist artists, it's by capturing the colors that emote the scene. And for Lewis and Tolkien, it's by telling stories. Stories like the ones that they always loved as they were growing up. Those great, those great myths that somehow still capture these moments that, that go to our deepest truth. Lewis said of those stories... Uh, and, and through reading great literature in general, and I think this applies to art as well, the more I think about it, the more I think about seeing through the perspective of Vincent van Gogh. He said, my own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others in reading great literature. I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. And after he started writing, uh, writing things like the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told when one ought to feel, what one uh, ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to do so. You're told you should feel for Christ's sufferings. Therefore, therefore, because you're told to, you are inhibited from possibly doing so. Uh, an obligation to feel can freeze feelings, he says. But supposing that by casting all of these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. And... And 
Lewis was a huge fan of G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he was one of his uh, uh, big influences in writing. He came from one generation before Lewis himself. And Chesterton said, because Chesterton was fascinated by the appeal of fairy tales, of myths, he relayed why they are so true for us and why depict, depicting these truths that we find in fairy tales, even the dark, scary ones, are, uh, are, are very good. They are reassuring to us. He says, fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey, or in America, we would say the boogeyman. <laughs> what fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby, the baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. That idea, that perpetual idea that we have, that there is evil in the world. We know this from, from the time we are very, very small. We are afraid of it. Uh, and yet, we need to be assured that, that evil is to be overcome. We can relay this in our stories, more important, we, importantly, we preach this in our reality. And finally, may your art be beautiful. We've talked about how beauty is a, is a reflection of God's glory. It, uh, we see it in creation, uh, even, even through the filter of the world's brokenness. We still see these glimpses of beauty that pull on us. Lewis describes uh, when, he was, when he was a child, these, uh, these experiences, just, just occasionally, of what he termed joy. Transcendence moment, transcendent moments with a uh, with a terrarium that his brother had had created uh, that seemed to be magical, seemed to pull from another world. And good art does this; it it reflects a little bit of that uh, creativity that we are born with. It it reflects some of the goodness and truth that is still drifting into the world. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright calls this uh, one of the uh, uh, echoes of a voice. 
uh, an echo of the voice of, of God and an echo of the new creation that's breaking into the present. And C.S. Lewis describes how this calls to us, how this, this beauty in the world, the beauty in our, our, our art calls to us. He says, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even, though, even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. It is that longing for the new creation, that longing for the kingdom of God, that, that ultimately calls us uh, uh, to see the beauty in the creation that we see right now and to pursue beauty both in the art that we see and the art we produce. This is why when we get into the discussions of modern art like we had last week, that divorce of beauty from art, I think you lose the meaning of art. And so the art we create uh, as Christians uh, I think because any true artist, uh, uh, not motivated, you know, primarily by financial reasons or, or something like that, if, if you're actually coming from your own creativity, then your worldview is going to seep into your art, even, even if you are writing fiction, if you are making uh, an abstract work, uh, it still seeps in, and, and the world around will notice. Uh, reflect back to the, uh, to the old monasteries, uh, the Celtic monasteries that uh, in uh, Ireland in Scotland, in Northern England that we talked about many, many weeks ago now. How they moved in and they set up shop. They engaged with the culture, but they did good work. And they preached the truth and they made things that were beautiful. They created songs, uh, some like Cademan's hymn that, that still drift down to us today. They made beautiful art that still drifts down to us today with things like the gospel books, uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Book of Kells. Uh, through, uh, through this outreach, through, through engaging with those around them, doing good, producing things that were good, they, they communicated the gospel to their neighbors. Uh, and in this way became great witnesses. Uh, final word uh, that I wanted uh, to quote was from, is from one of my favorite uh, Christian songwriters, and I don't have many. Um, 
but uh, he was very influential on me as I was coming to faith as a teenager. Rich Mullins, uh, who passed away a couple decades ago now. Uh, but he said, I hope you see the faithfulness of God in everything that he has made. I hope you learn to trust that all of this is his care sworn to you. But mostly, I hope you know Jesus through whom God has wildly and ferociously loved us. I hope that you know that you become sacramental to your neighbor, who God also loves passionately. I hope you leave them with little doubt about his love and the victory Jesus won over hate and death. I wanted to close us before our questions. We'll still have time for those with a prayer, again, not, not from the Book of Common Prayer. I'm being a very bad Anglican today. Um, but from uh, a book of uh, poetic prayers, liturgies, by a guy named uh, Douglas McKelvey. Uh, it's called Every Moment Holy. And this is a lament upon the finishing of a beloved book which I think, considering uh, who we've talked about today, uh, and because this has been a very story-driven class in general, I think, uh, is particularly fitting. I'm stirred and saddened, O Lord, in coming to this tale's end, to bid farewell and return now for my sojourn in that storied place where longings for something more than the life I lead were wakened. It is in the receding glow of that small, bright sorrow that I now linger. Let it do its work in me, inviting me to dig beneath these fresh, stirred longings, to see that their roots are not at long at are not at last a longing for the places depicted in these pages, but are, in truth, profound and holy wounds, yearnings for a lost garden and a more perfect city where justice and righteousness are restored and harms are healed and losses redeemed and love proved true and earth and heaven reconciled. What I feel is, at its heart, a homesick hope for a place of unbroken communion with my Creator and with His people. And with all of His creation, what I most desire is to be open, is to open my eyes and find that, for the first time in my life, I am home and breathing the wild winds of my native land. So, of course, my heart aches each time I receive these beautiful, distant rumors of that far country. Of course, I do not want such a story to end, for it has wedged, it has wedged open for me a way like a window through which I have glimpsed a vision of things more as they will one day be than as they now are in this hard and sorrowing land 
of our exile. Thank you, O my God, for loving me enough that you would rouse my deepest desires again through story, appointing these longings as true signposts, planted in a war-torn and cratered landscape, reminding me that all of history is leading at last to a king and a kingdom, and pointing me ever onward towards his righteous and eternal city. May I return now from the world of this book to the daily details of my own life with truer vision and fiercer hope trailing with me, remnants of that coming glory I have glimpsed again in story. Amen. First, I want to thank you all for sticking with me the past 13 weeks, uh, plus the two that we give me. Um, uh, it has been a pleasure to, uh, to be able to work through a lot of this material publicly for the first time, uh, as well as to have some of your great questions, the great discussion that we've had with each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a real blessing to me, and I, I hope it has blessed you in some way. Questions, comments? Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you're ever looking for just a really great biography of C.S. Lewis, and there are many of them out there, but Alistair McGrath's is both readable and it's by far the most comprehensive and up-to-date as far as scholarship of Lewis's works go. Uh, it's, uh, it's an engaging read, and yet, uh, and yet it is full of good information about Lewis, uh, the people who surrounded him, and his times in general. Andrew Peterson's Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making is sort of, it's both his, um, he is a um, singer-songwriter in Nashville as well as the author of a series of young adult fantasy books, and uh, which I recommend as well. It's the Wing Feather Saga. Uh, but uh, uh, that, that book uh, is part memoir of his time coming up as a writer and a uh, singer-songwriter as well uh, as well as his, his thoughts and encouragement on being creative. Um, uh, Dying Glyer's uh, Bandersnatch <laughs> um, is, is a great book on what the creativity of the Inklings can teach us. Uh, where where they went right, and even where they stumbled as a group over time uh, uh, due to dynamics in that group um, uh, so those those are probably uh, the big ones. Uh, the poem I just read was from every moment holy um, uh, jerem bars that's uh, that 's a good little book on uh, on literature and the arts, the things we see in, in the arts. Uh, and he particularly makes use of Lewis, Tolkien, Shakespeare, 
and some others in, in, uh, in talking about that. Um, uh, and I've referenced uh, Wright's works before as far as just king, king, kingdom thought and how uh, things like beauty are signposts to, to the kingdom. So, um, but yeah, McGrath is my go-to as far... Oh, uh, C.S. Lewis is surprised by joy. That's his personal spiritual autobiography. And, uh, and so you get his stories firsthand about what changed his heart about Christianity from that. Um, I referenced uh, Makoto Fujimura a lot in uh, uh, our second and third class, our first two real lessons. And so I think he is a great artist. He combines uh, modern abstract art with traditional Japanese techniques. He's a New York-based artist and has been really, uh, uh, he's been influential on that scene uh, for, for about 20 years um, while also uh, being a fervent Christian. Um, uh, oh, uh, about a decade ago, Crossway um, Publishers, uh, they commissioned him to illuminate a Bible. You know, we're drawing back to the illuminations of, of the uh, uh, old Celtic and Benedictine monks, uh, and yet do it in his style. And so he did this illumination of the English Standard Version Gospels. And any of you can get an up-close look at this afterward if you want to. But blending his style, and he'll use like things, you know, representing water when it talks about John the Baptist or, or things like that. Very abstract usually, and yet very much before I'm a deacon, I better learn how to hold a gospels book better. Um, uh, but anyhow, it's, it's beautiful. I think it's a great representation of, of being an artist that is both working in a modern style and, and yet whose faith shows clearly through their works today. Um, so that's, that's there if anyone wants to see it afterward. Uh, anything else? All right. Thank you all so much.